On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. In our past two episodes, we have been talking about some important research that Sanath and the Cure GPX4 Foundation have been working on to search through over 4,000 compounds for some leads on which might work for Raghav's condition. We have discussed the design of the high-throughput screening assays and the exciting results they observed. The good news is, is that they found 116 hits, compounds that showed some activity in the assay which measured the rate of growth of Raghav's cells in culture. Of the 116 hits, 43 of them are already approved and available for use. The challenge now is sifting through these compounds to select the most promising ones to pursue. It's not easy. There are a lot of factors to consider. That's where we pick up our conversation. I don't think I have the, the right rating yet because I actually have two filters. Safety and dosing are actually filters. They just remove compounds that are that don't satisfy the filter criteria. Once you get to the mechanism of action, and that's where the, the real rating comes in, I don't even know what those what those factors are going to be and what the weights would look like. Uh, but my hope is the, the number of compounds would be small enough that I could, you know, pick my favorite and run with it. Regardless, like this is a pretty complicated problem at this point because it's it's starting to get very opinionated, and I'm always worried that I will end up making a poor scientific opinion that others trust. And so, you know, as long as I can get more people to weigh in and and confirm the opinions that we make, um, I think we should be we should be good to go. Actually, this is a good time and good segue to talk about some of the compounds we have on this list because I have a, a pretty interesting list in front of me and I think you know talking about it would be would be super cool. Yeah, why don't we talk about a few of the 43 approved compounds, 11 of them have been indicated for neurological conditions and more specifically they've been indicated for antipsychotic conditions. A lot of them are, are for schizophrenia. I, I don't know why, but uh, quite a bit of them are for schizophrenia. Six of them are for reproduction-related issues like abortion, erectile dysfunction, and a whole bunch of other things. And one is actually approved in the EU for Friedrich's ataxia, um, one of the rare diseases. And another one is approved for cystic fibrosis, another rare disease as well. There is actually couple including the cystic fibrosis drug that's specifically targeting lungs and so we've we have a broad spectrum of, of of drugs here but i think if we start getting into the mechanism of action we'll be quickly able to categorize these drugs as drugs that have a specific motif that all work in the neurological case uh, and drugs that have a different sort of a structure that potentially work in you know reproduction 
uh, or reproductive diseases and so on. So speaking of the weight, I think once we get to the mechanism of action, we can then narrow the drugs down and potentially eliminate classes of them because maybe we don't want any of the schizophrenia drugs because they cause a lot of poor side effects or, or they all target a very specific kinase that you don't ever want to inhibit. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So I'm kind of scrolling through the list here and it is amazing that, like you said, that there's some for schizophrenia, there's some for, I see for osteoporosis and we start thinking about, oh, what is this, you know, SSMD? And it's like, it, it has those things as part of its profile. And so now it's the trick of finding something that works in multiple ways and, you know, in multiple, you know, neurological skeletal, digestive, all of that. And it's interesting kind of just scrolling through quickly and not really analyzing the breadth of what you've seen here. Um, it's it's actually quite remarkable. And I see that you're looking at this EC50 number. And I think you mentioned that before, maybe in our earlier conversation, but could you go through it again? What is an EC50? And then tell us a little bit about you know, how you've used that here at this early stage. So EC50 is a measure of the lowest concentration that can give you 50% of improvement from baseline. And so we measure the, the, the experiment is measuring the cell's growth. So we measure the growth at baseline, which is before the drug was given. And then we have different concentrations at which we give the drug. And uh, and, and that gives us the lowest concentration uh, or the lowest improvement and the highest improvement based on the concentration. EC50 is simply choosing the lowest concentration at which you can get 50% improvement from baseline. Why is this relevant? Because one of the properties of being a drug is that a small dose of it can actually make a big difference in humans. If it doesn't happen, you're looking at supplements. For example, you could take a vitamin supplement. You could take, you know, multivitamin gummy bears and, and I don't know, chew a bunch of them. You probably are still fine, right? If you keep doing that for, say, a year or two, then you probably have a problem. But for the most part, if you stick within uh, reasonable ranges, you don't even need uh, an FDA approval to to use these multivitamins or supplements. And that's the reason for that is, is their EC50s typically end up looking a lot higher. So you need a lot higher concentration for these supplements to actually work. And to get to that high levels of concentration, you just simply cannot get through any supplement that's approved in, or available in the pharmacy. You really have to get the drug delivered either intravenously or, or some other route. And, and generally, at higher higher concentration, you start seeing a lot of safety issues and side effects. And so you te- you tend to favor drugs that have low EC50, so they can actually act like a drug. They can have a strong effect in the body at a very small concentration. So hopefully there will be less adverse effects. But the EC50 number is not, you can't just trust it on its own. Absolutely. It's it's a really good indicator or surrogate for what the dose will be. So if you have a high EC50, it's going to be a high dose. If it's a low EC50, it's a low dose. And because all drugs do anything you put in your body, carry some toxicity. If you go too high with something, a lower dose, a lower effective dose is always what you're looking for. And it also, as you said, it's not the only number that you look at because this was in, you know, a little 
tiny little well in a in a plate, you know, a tiny little experiment in concentrations in vitro, when you put it in a human body or any animal body, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on. It needs to get absorbed. It, need, it will get metabolized. It will could get changed to a different different compound in the body. The good news is, is that because you're looking at approved drugs, a lot of that information is already there. They've had to already look at what's going on. So you can start to make the connections better and, and flesh out the, the understanding. But thank you for kind of going through that with folks, how that had happened. So where you're at in the process now is you got a team of people together. You've got a whole spreadsheet that's starting to to pull together some of the data. I note in the spreadsheet, some of that is just reading the literature and understanding the drugs. What is the timeline that you guys are are looking at for kind of crunching through all this information? I think approximately a month because we are looking at off-label use of a drug. I think once we find a drug, it would be really quick to get it to Raghav. So I'm thinking in about a month, we should have this narrowed down to one or two or a few drugs that we can hopefully get Raghav started on. But as with everything, this is always an estimate, right? My biggest worry is that we would go through this process and find nothing, right? I mean, we obviously have the hits to start with, but then we wouldn't have a drug that's safe enough that we think, you know, we can go forward with right away. That's my worry, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. There is there is like one anti-malarial drug in this list that's been used in, in people all over the world that we know it's safe. But obviously, we never, no one, no one has given this a chronic dosing, and so there are a couple of those types of drugs that we know have been used in pediatric conditions at, at a reasonable safety level. So I'm hoping some of those would end up in the final list. But my my biggest worry is is what if what if there's nothing? So hopefully, in a month, we'll we'll know a whole lot more and be able to start a drug for Raghav. Wow, that's that's pretty fast, but it it is you need to set an aggressive target here to get through the data and just understand it and keep the process moving. It's interesting you you brought up there, just mentioned that there's anti-malarial drugs, but they're usually, you know, a week or two of dosing, right? But this is a lifetime. And so that's a whole other factor that will need to be studied, you know, as you, as you go forward. And I think you know, it's wise right now to say, let's not go there. You can't afford that. I was going to say too, there's almost like you need a short list, which is here's our our primary compound that we're going to look at, but then you want to have backups as well. What what do we do next if that one doesn't pan out? And that's, it's a similar decision-making process, but, you know, I think if you get there, then you've got a little bit of room to say, we know what to do next if this doesn't work. And we know what to do next if the first one does work. You can always keep pushing the two two along together. This is, we said at the beginning, this is really exciting. You know, two years ago, you you just found out about this mutation. And now you're finding, you know, a couple dozen approved compounds that that may help. It's truly exciting. 
And it sounds like you're going to be busy. So maybe I should let you go and you can get to work. <laughs> yeah, and no, I'm super excited about the, the results from the high throughput screening. It's, um, it's the thing that I said we will not do right away when we got started, because uh, obviously I knew if we had garbage and we would have garbage coming out. Looking at this list, I think uh, we have a pretty good candidate and I don't think this is garbage to start with. So I'm super excited that we can find something that we can give to Raga uh, as soon as we can, because at this point, we would take anything. You know, time is still ticking for him. He's continuing to develop in this disease. You know, he's obviously at the risk of cold and and all those little things that could bother him and not have a stable, healthy life. So, you know, all we are looking for is is one compound that can give even a marginal improvement to his quality of life. I'm not looking for a miracle. So hopefully in a month or two, we will be there. And that's super exciting to even think about. Absolutely. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare.